Well, well, well. Um, welcome to Black Men Speak. It's a podcast that highlights ordinary black men doing extraordinary things. And I'm your host, Keith Dent. And um, hey, I know it's been a while. Um, I took an extended vacation uh, to take care of just myself and, you know, others. You know, it was Mother's Day last week. Uh, shout out to my mom and my wife and, uh, and wanted to make sure that we celebrated them and all mothers all over uh, the world. And so, um, I'm but I'm just glad to be here. Today's topic is just going to be, I think, just spectacular. I know in this show, I, I tried not to focus on sports, but this is kind of in a different vein. And it's very kind of appropriate because, you know, this past week we lost one of our great athletes, uh, Jim Brown, but he was also a great civil rights activist. And, um, and he passed away at 87 uh, years young. If you don't really know about his story, you really should read about it because he was one of the uh, individuals that um, really brought race to the forefront back into the 50s, um, you know, and, and that was not something that, you know, athletes really uh, did, you know. So he was prominent in a, which, you know, aptly had a name called the Cleveland Summit. And he called out other famous athletes to participate. You know, there's athletes like Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Muhammad Ali, who was kind of the main focal point because of his protests of the Vietnam War and you know, other things. And of course, we all, you know, anyone that knows about Muhammad Ali knows what kind of happened to him. I think he pronounced his title and, you know, and, you know, hey, if you don't know, Google, Google his story, uh, but it's fantastic. You know, this summit, kind of also called, um, made a significant turning point in the role of athletes and activism, you know, in our society. And so, you know, there were other activists that, you know, came after him and, you know, different things, but it called also kind of led to the 20, you know, the 21st century and uh, protest movement that, you know, of course, everybody really knows about, um, but, you know, at the forefront of that was an athlete by the name of Colin Kaepernick. And so today, on today's show, we're going to be talking about someone who covered that story. And, um, and his name is David Steele. And so he's the author of It Was Always a Choice, you know, picking up the baton of athlete activism. So... And just want to make, read a little bio on him, you know, if you haven't heard of him. Uh, you know, he really explored the complications and risk accounted by professional athletes regarding their personal involvement in social issues. David is a veteran and an award-winning sports journalist who currently writes about sports for a legal news site called Law360, which uh, when I saw that, I was like, <laughs> what, what could they be covering? Uh, but basically, probably some you know legal news, contract stuff, and and um, you know, hey, there, sports is ingrained in everything these days. So, but he's also the co-author of Silent Gestures, the autobiography of Tommy Smith, and the Four Generations of Color, the autobiography of baseball scout and sports agent Miles McAfee. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure and a, and a real honor to to, to be uh, to be invited on here. Great, great. So before we get into uh, Colin and his story, 
What really prompted you to write this book in the first place? Well, I, I've written a, um, about this, this, this sort of topic and this, this aspect of sports uh, and society uh, for a long time. Once I got a chance to be a sports columnist after years of uh, being a sports beat writer and general assignment writer and things like that, and I started writing columns, I started, uh, you know, focusing focusing in every chance I got on things like uh, historical uh, movements that athletes took part in, uh, activities that were going on and in, in, in issues and controversies that uh, athletes either were choosing to uh, take part in, uh, speak out about, or choose not to. Uh, focusing on that kind of led to having the opportunity to co-author the autobiography of Tommy Smith. Um, I was working in California at the time, and he was still teaching in uh, in Southern California long after his career had ended and everything. And it was an opportunity to do his to tell his life story and talk about everything that led up to his uh, his his evolution as the bad sort of at the him and Tom, uh, John Carlos being at the center of that 1968 uh, Olympics protest with their fist raised on the uh on the victory stand that ended up sort of leading several years later to an opportunity to write about the 50th anniversary of that protest when i was working for the sporting news this was in uh 2018 and when i wrote about that i decided i wanted to put it into uh, the context of today and at that time uh what colin kaepernick was doing uh was at the top of everybody's mind and that was still really you know uh, working its way throughout the entire sports world, through the NFL. He was still being blackballed by the NFL at the time. Uh, and there were so many parallels between what he was doing and what he was enduring and what those athletes from, you know, the 1960s and, and, and in, that, in that era uh, were going through. Uh, so I did that piece. And then two years later come the George Floyd protests and all the ways that the athletes and the sports world engaged with that. You know, sometimes, you know, usually for the better, but, you know, sometimes for worse. And just sort of seeing, again, how the athletes, you know, decided to to, to speak up and use their platforms and use their voices to really engage everybody on everything that was going on across the country. And so as that was going on, that's when somebody reached out to me and said, hey, I think this might be an opportunity for a book. And I said, hey, I really kind of just wrote about that in a, in a fairly long uh, article a couple of years ago. What do you think about turning that into a book? And here we are today, and that's how um, it was always a choice uh, came about. That's great, and I, and I know this is not one of the things we talked about, but it was always a choice. So that's a pretty interesting title because I think a lot of the athletes, well, maybe not now because of social media and everything, and we'll get into a question about that. But um, a lot of the athletes probably felt like they didn't have a choice to, to do that. So what made you decide to use that as the title of the book? As far as the title itself of the book, I, I really have to give credit to uh, to my team at, the, okay. at my publishers, uh, Temple University Press and Marie Anderson, our marketing uh, director at the time, uh, came up with that. And it struck me immediately. I said, I think that's the one because it really kind of uh, encapsulates you know, the thread that runs through the entire book and, and in a lot of ways through all the things that I've written about these because the athletes who do choose to step up and to speak up and to act out and to uh, engage in some sort of direct action, you know, they do so, you know, un, you know, for the most part, understanding 
what the what the benefits are and what the risks are. And all the athletes who choose not to do the exact same thing. And more often than not, the athletes who decide to stay silent or decide to sort of stay on the side of the people who want them to just play ball, want them to just to, you know, not to uh, coin an original phrase, to shut up and dribble, uh, to just stick to sports, you know, they do so because they've made a calculation. They say, yeah, I do feel strongly about that, but not strongly enough to risk everything that I have, everything that I've put on the line, whether it's the money, the visibility, just being and being, you know, having this sort of a career, setting up my, my kids and my grandkids for life, you know, uh, and really just facing the sort of repercussions that the Muhammad Ali's and the Tommy Smith's and the John Carlos's, and in some cases, as you mentioned, the Jim Brown's, the Bill Russell's, you know, people who faced incredible opposition, hatred, you know, hate crimes, just, you know, being blackballed from their sport, being pushed away, having their careers shut down and being influenced, the stresses that their entire lives go through, you know, not just their careers, and certainly Colin Kaepernick, again, who never set foot on a football field again after his choice of, you know, of, of, of protesting. And that's what sort of crystallized for me. It's like to choose to speak up with the platform and the voice that you have is a choice. And to not do anything at all and let somebody else take all the heat and basically choose your comfort over the possibility of making vast, vast change in society. That's a choice as well. Wow. Yeah. So we'll, we'll definitely touch upon what you just said, you know, in, a little later on as we address some of the individuals that didn't, um, didn't actually step up. So with that said, what is the, what's the overall, I guess, framework or personality traits that as you were researching the book that the activists that did decide to do that have? Well, I, I, I always felt that it took an incredible amount of courage um, and uh, perspective and understanding of the sacrifice and the con- and in a lot of cases the consequences of 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 your actions and you know and this is I want to be really really careful this it's, this is not to say that any of the athletes who have reached this level of success who have this sort of visibility and the, these riches and these this fame and and uh, adoration you know across the country, sometimes around the world, and certainly very much concentrated within your own race, amongst your own people, that that didn't take a lot of courage either because it's very hard to get all the way to the top uh, the way a lot of the athletes, uh, well, really all the athletes do when they get that far. Um, but to do, but to, to, to reach that point and then to say, I'm going to speak out on something that could completely alienate and inspire the hatred of a vast, vast percentage of uh, you know of the public, the people who are so responsible for the lifestyle that I lead, for my popularity, and in obviously a lot of cases, the people who literally pay me, the people who write my checks, the people who determine the course of my athletic future, and sometimes my future beyond athletics as well. To do that because I have that sincere belief in 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 my cause, and in and 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 the strength of will to possibly give all of that up as I fight for this cause, it takes a courage beyond even the courage it takes to get to uh, get to the top of your profession. So mm. again, when you sort of look at the examples that we're talking about, um, you know, when you look at Ali, you know, mm. you know, the heavyweight champion of the world, 
he said, I'm not going to go to Vietnam. And they said, well, then you're not going to be champion of the world anymore. They took his title. They took away his licenses. They said he couldn't fight anymore in his prime when he could have just put all the records away. And for them, that was it. And he was willing to go ahead and do that because of his beliefs. Tommy Smith and John Carlos literally yeah. standing on the podium with the gold and the bronze medals at the Olympic Games on live TV doing that at the most, one of the most contentious times in American history, knowing that, and they've said this before, and Tommy Smith said it uh, in, in his book, and John Carlos has hinted that a bunch of times already. They did not know they were, if they would make it off the stand and back into the stadium and under the, under the stadium back to safety without somebody killing them right there on the field. They weren't sure about that. Mm. Um, you know, and again, with Colin Kaepernick, you know, he was, you know, yeah, he was not starting at the time that he began his protest, but he was right. still a viable starting NFL quarterback who had just gone to the Super Bowl, who had broken records, um, who was still somebody who certainly could have played another six, seven, the way things are, 10 more years and decided this is more important and realizing that he may never play again. And certainly at the end of the season, we realize now that was seven years ago. He's 30 years old at the time that he did that, and he's never and he has never played again. And he has been, you know, just the sort of again hatred and uh, vitriol, and you know, I mean, the president of the United States right. took it upon himself to personally attack Colin Kaepernick, right, and to bring all of his forces and all the people behind him in line against him. Not everybody can do that, you know. It's an even difficult thing to even write about it and be in support of that personally. You know, some people can't go into their jobs and speak themselves and, and, and speak up about these things themselves without putting those jobs in jeopardy. When you have that much, uh, you know, at your fingertips for the most part, knowing that really, literally, if you just keep your head down, you could just set yourself up for life. And he decided, no, this is, this is, this is more important than that. So, uh, understanding those, you know, what level of sacrifice you have to take, it's still, choosing to go ahead and do it, I think are that's sort of the tie that binds all of those, uh, all of these athletes together. Okay. Right. Since it was, the book was really uh, centered around Colin Kaepernick and his journey and all of the other activists were kind of interwoven. Let's kind of set the scene. Cause at the, and we started, we've started it already. You, you had mentioned that he wasn't starting at the time. So he was basically in San Francisco was kind of on the tail end of his journey. He wasn't, he hadn't been playing well from what I can recall, but what, what really, what was his, you know, when he, San Francisco was such a iconic, as far as quarterbacks are concerned, what was really his status within the community uh, before the protests began? Well, one thing that sort of always keep in perspective when you talk about him is where we are with black quarterbacks. And we've seen a lot of that, uh, certainly in recent years. I mean, the, certainly this this past uh, offseason, we've seen, you know, everything that's sort of revolved around uh, Lamar Jackson trying to get the contract that, he, that, he, that he's gotten. Just the history of black quarterbacks in this, you know, in, in this sport at this level uh, is always something that, you know, the, the, you know his, the, the people have always sort of galvanized themselves behind. They know that it's still rare. They understand what the challenge is. Uh, and he had ascended, you know, really as close to the peak as you possibly can. You know, he was in a lot of ways being described as like the next generation uh, of, of of quarterback doing a lot of things that basically Lamar is uh, is is doing right now. But yeah, he hit a bad patch. 
Uh, he got injured. His play fell off. There was incredible turmoil within the 49ers organization, coaching changes, uh, ownership feuding with different people. And, you know, he was in a really tenuous spot, certainly at that time. There was a, there was a sense when he made his choices that it was going to take a lot for him to get his job back which didn't necessarily mean that his career was going to be over because obviously, you know, players move around all the time and everything. Uh, and somebody else could very well have said, well, if it, you know, if that didn't work out there, we're willing to put our faith in you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was a big contract thing going on, you know, but it was, it was a very volatile time certainly for him and in, in, in his career. So logically speaking, you would, you would sort of think, well, whatever I got to do to sort of, you know, safeguard my career and not do anything that will that will jeopardize that. That's probably the thing I should do. Get myself healthy, earn my job back, put myself on display for other teams, or maybe ease my way back in, get lucky, get on a run or something like that. But, but what happened in the summer of 2016 really pushed him to the point where he decided, I can't just sit here and be quiet. And if we remember correctly, and I, I actually addressed it in the book as well, uh, that was the summer that uh, Philando Castile up in Minnesota was shot. And uh, there was also the shooting in Baton Rouge of an, of an unarmed black man. Not long after that, there was a Black Lives Matter protest in Dallas where a sniper killed uh, some Dallas policemen. So there was so much going on at that time. And athletes, little by little, were starting to speak out about it. Uh, they were taking to social media, which is something that you, know, you and I have talked about yeah. in, in a, a little bit about the sort of visibility that's, that social media allows you. So it wasn't a matter of, and it was obviously the, the NFL's off season, you know, people aren't necessarily running around putting microphones in your face and cameras and things like that, asking every single athlete, hey, what do you think about this? He took to his Twitter, he took to his Instagram, he took to every uh, platform he had and said, this is, a, this is an actual lynching. This is what the police are doing to us. Our, our lives do not matter to them. You know, and again, this is sort of a continuation of what had gone on a few years earlier with Michael Brown and Trayvon. And just everything was building to a head. And that summer in particular was particularly hot. And he decided, I can't just talk about it. You know, even though athletes were starting to stir it up a little bit, other NFL players were talking in the same way. But he said, I can't, I can't just leave it at talking. I need to do something about it. That's when he started sitting out the national anthem. That led to him taking a knee during the national anthem. Teammates began to join him. But then once people realized what was going on and understood why he was doing it, and again, there were a lot of people who literally do not care whether or not the cops were killing us or not. You know, mm -hmm. he, took, he faced that black, he faced that backlash. And from mm -hmm. then on, it was very much touch and go whether he would ever play again. Or, and, and, and basically, you know, whether he was ever going to be safe again in any way because so many people came down on including obviously the NFL, which did everything it could to stop not just him, but other athletes from following in his footsteps. It didn't really help because a lot of athletes did start following in his footsteps. They began right. raising their fists. They began taking a knee. They began linking their arms. They began speaking about this when people came, when reporters came up to them, you know, began going on TV and on radio and, and again, using their own platforms to speak about this. And by that time, it was all starting to uh, come together so that he became the face of that in full knowledge of the possibility that it was going to put an end to his career. And as we saw, that's exactly what happened.
Right, right. And so I don't, I mean, I know you focused on Colin and, um, and I did see a, I did see a piece you know, earlier where a lot of the, I guess, other athletes weren't really clear on what was happening. Um, and so, and you know, a football team is a, is pretty huge. It's not like basketball is about maybe 12, 12 guys where you, they might, uh, you know, pal around, you know, with a football team that large, you know, with about 40 plus people on it, not everybody kind of hangs out together. So it'd be interesting to know really what, what happened in the locker room, especially since, you know, as you could see, a lot of the pro, you know, protests fell upon racial lines, you know, it was mostly black players that uh, protest, except for a few, you know, white athletes, Chris Long being one of them. But I would have, I'd love to hear that part of it. What was the kind of the tenor of like the locker rooms during this time? Just to sort of take the 49ers themselves as an example and then sort of to expand it uh, to what was going on across the league and all the other locker rooms. It was very divided. There, was, there wasn't any question. Um, now, one sort of interesting uh, facet of it was that even if they, you know, vehemently disagreed with what he was doing, and openly said, we, we, "I would never do that in a million years," you know, I would punch somebody or slap them in the face or yank them off of his knees if they ever tried to do that. And they'd start telling you their stories about, "Oh, my dad and my grandfather and my all my uncles were in the military, and he this another that and the other was a cop and all these things." They still saw what he did as something admirable because it took the guts that it did because mm. it was a because it was courageous and at a certain point during the season when he did return to the starting lineup they did support him you know they did not you know they did not take part in harassing him they did not gang up against him they really did follow him you know it was a pretty bad team and they had a terrible record but they more or less you know coalesced behind him and supported him and put a public face on you know their support of him and at the end, they voted him their most courageous player. But in terms of who was actually going to stand behind him in terms of, of being part of the protest and speaking out, yeah, it was almost completely down racial lines. It was, you know, very few white. And that, you know, when the white players do it, that's why it stands out so much because there was so much resistance and opposition to a lot, to by a lot of them. You know, they felt offended personally, they felt offended politically. You know, some a lot of them leaned on that as their uh, as their reason for offense. Uh, the black players supported him, but ve- a lot of them were also very unsure of themselves whether they should put them put their necks out there and do it publicly. And as it turned out, there would maybe be no more than one or two teammates that would also take a knee with him uh, on the sidelines, game after game after game. One of them was Eric Reed. And uh, I got a chance to speak about him in the, during the course of the book as well. And, uh, you know, he was uh, sent away after uh, about another year or so. And he's, right. he's had a difficult time getting back into the league uh, as well. But uh, he, stood by, he stood by him the whole time or, and I, I specifically kneeled with him. You know, others, again, they, they might join hand, they might, they might have joined hands or they might have raised their fist or something like that. Uh, so... That was the case in the 49er locker room. In other locker rooms across the, the, the league, some of them were very united in saying, we're, we are not going to stab each other in the back and say, 
you know, we're not going to support each other, things like that. So you have a team like the Eagles, you have teams like the Patriots and uh, the Seattle Seahawks and others who said, Houston Texans, who said, okay, yeah, we may not agree with what you're saying, but we're not going to come out here and embarrass you or call you out or something like that. So if you want to, if you want to raise your fist or if you want to take a knee or do something else, we're going to be behind you. And so you would see that uh, during the national anthem of a game. Other players were ordered or at least strongly hinted by their coaches, the GMs, and by the team owners not to do anything, you know, that they would be punished, even though there was no specific rule in the NFL saying this is how you have to act during the national anthem. So a lot of they, – they put that sort of pressure on a lot of the players. So even if they agreed with him, even if they spoke openly about agreeing with him, they were just absolutely prohibited – or strongly, strongly hinted that there were going to be serious repercussions if they uh, if they did anything. It really wasn't until a year after, when Trump, you know, openly mocked them and called them out and said they should all be fired, you know, uh, in the middle of his first year in office, that teams began collectively, even to the even to the to the case of ownership, collectively starting to kneel, uh, collectively raising their fists, collectively deciding to. Uh, protest in, in in some way, uh, but in the early in the, in the early times, you know, a lot of them just were not willing to commit themselves like that, and sometimes they were they a lot of them in my case were still fighting with their own teammates in their uh, in in locker rooms and, and mm. doing this mm. doing this very often more often than not down uh, down racial lines. Wow! Wow! Okay. And so then we kind of fast forward to George Floyd uh, and the issues with, since we're dealing on this theme and we'll probably go back and forth there where they were uh, with that, it really triggered uh, teams uh, to start to speak out whereby you, you uh, reference the Milwaukee Bucks as they uh, decided not to play. Uh, in a in a very uh, important playoff game, which then sent ripple effects throughout the league. Why do you think that the, they didn't get the same backlash uh, as you know a couple of years earlier? Is it because of it was the because it was the NBA and it's primarily a league full of people of color? Um, or was it just the times? Part of it was that it was the NBA. And there was certainly there were elements of what was going on at that time that sort of made that, that like sort of the, the perfect sort of ideal uh, uh, collision point, for lack of a better word, for, for something like that to happen, for the players to come together. But the times were, were, were very significant when it comes to that. Because because I remember now this it was now four years after Colin began uh, began kneeling, it was four years after the the the, the police murders that had uh, motivated him to do that. Uh, Philando Castile and uh, Alton Sterling down in uh, down uh, in in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been now we're going up on like six or seven years since Michael Brown and Ferguson and all the other ones that had, that had, that had gone on, and it was just an incredibly long list as I think everybody remembers. They could just name so many that had sort of caught everybody's attention. And I think as everybody knows now looking back, but they also understood it at the time, 
George Floyd was the last straw. Just the, the confluence of everything that was happening at that time just broke everybody. Uh, seeing the video, uh, knowing that if the video had not come out, that it would have all been covered up and, you know, the police would have would have made up a story about it and it would have just been brushed off as somebody resisting arrest or whatever the excuse was going to be. The fact that it was live and vivid and, and, and living color and to see that in the preceding days, you know, there was still, you know, no satisfaction, uh, no sort of resolution, no sort of, you know, attempt to hold anybody responsible there. Then the unrest began and that just spiraled across the country and then around the world. I mean, by the mm. time it got to the point where where the where the NBA players were ready to act, it had been it, it was a worldwide movement. It was literally the biggest social protest movement since since like the Vietnam War. Mm. You know, it, it, it just just a brand new generation of people who took to the streets and said, "Enough is enough," and that made for a much different uh, atmosphere. I mean, that was four years after. You know, the country elected Donald Trump president. Of course, this was going on during another election campaign and it was going on during the pandemic. So everybody was on so many different levels and everybody was in so much of a mood for everything has to change. We cannot go backwards now. We this has to go forward. And what happened with George Floyd was it was the catalyst to that. And the athletes, they, they said, you know, across the board. You know, we're going to do something about this. So, again, the NBA was in its bubble at the time, and the NBA players were in the playoffs. The WNBA also in their bubble. You know, and they're in the middle of their regular season. And for the most part, simultaneously, they decided we're going to speak up and we're going to, you know, and, and if we have to stop play and walk off the court in front of everybody, we will go ahead and do that. And the fact that the Bucks decided to do that and the Bucks did it during the playoffs – and also, obviously, the fact that it was the Bucks because that was also the week that Jacob Blake was shot and paralyzed up in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm, right. uh, and so that was like an insult on top of an insult. And it was a signal that these people really are not going to stop based on all the protests, regardless of all the protests that were going on over George Floyd. It was the breaking point for the Bucks, for the Bucks players. And they said, this is our opportunity. And that's when they said they were going to do it. And the leagues and the teams just across the board, they were in a much different place than they were four years earlier. It was all pushback. Don't let these players take over. Don't let the inmates run the asylum. Right. Don't right. Let them, you know, don't, don't let, we're not taking our boots off their necks. They're going to remember their place. They're going to remember who's in charge, who's the boss, who they're playing for, who pays their salaries. That was four years earlier. Now, with the whole world clearly on this pushing against the establishment and pushing against the status quo and pushing in favor of radical, drastic change, all these teams knew that they were on the wrong side if they tried to, if they tried to um, resist all of this. And that's when you know they decided, okay, you know, maybe we should just put a pause on the playoffs. Maybe we better put a pause on these games. Maybe we shouldn't continue this round of the, uh, you know, it was before the U.S. Open, but it was like a tennis ch- uh, tournament up in New York. But it's like, mm-hmm. let's put a pause on this tournament. Let's put a pause on NFL training camps because NFL teams started walking out. 
You know? Right, right, right. You know, let's put a pause on the baseball season because teams were saying, and again, this you know how tiny the percentage of yeah. black players in baseball <laughs> are now. They were vocal enough, and their teammates were behind them enough. Mm-hmm. Again, drastic change from uh, four years earlier. They said, "No, we won't. We won't. We will not play. We're gonna. We're gonna support what's going on here. We're gonna support what's happening in the." It, what the Bucks are doing, what the NBA is doing, in the WNBA, and we're going to join up with all this. I mean, a golf tournament that they, they, you know, they they shut that down for a couple of days. Literally, sports just came to a halt for basically an entire weekend. Right, and the Bucks had been the one basically to to be the to be the catalyst for that. Right, and they were also the ones who also, you know, again, the NBA and the WNBA, everyone's who also decided that when we come back from all of this. We're going to make an even bigger statement. We're going to start taking a knee before every game. We're going to paint Black Lives Matter on the court. We're going to put posters of Breonna Taylor uh, up in the uh, up in the arena where the where the bubble was taking place. We're going to put our statements on the backs of our uniforms. Everything began to you know tilt in that favor, and it all began it all began because they said, "Here's the momentum of of, the, of these George Floyd protests." We're gonna we're gonna do something with that. We're that we're gonna you know we have more visibility than we've ever had, you know, at any other point of our lives or our careers. Let's do something about it, and that's what they did. Wow, great! And um, yeah, I can't wait to talk about you know where we are today with that. But um, kind of now going backwards to as you were doing the research, you know, on the different kind of activist movements or different activists, was there one? Uh, that really surprised you as far as may, either what they went through or just some of the things that they had to do to get their point across? Yeah, I, I think the the one that I knew the least about and was the most shocked when I sort of uh, started doing the digging around and everything was a uh, track and field athlete from the 50s uh, and early 60s named Rose Robinson. And I'd heard bits and pieces about her um, as I was working on the Tommy Smith, uh, the book on uh, the book on Tommy Smith, and as sort of the protests began with uh, with, with Colin Kaepernick, when the conversation of, hey, has anybody ever used the national anthem as a platform before? As it turned out, uh, she did mm. uh, again at a time when it was rare. It was even before uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos. This was in I think 1959 and 1960. Uh, this was the, the Pan American Games in 1959. She was, a, I believe, a long jumper. And so she was aiming for the 1960 Olympics in Rome, which, as it turned out, that was the one where Wilma Rudolph and all the Tennessee State athletes, you know, uh, jumped onto the stage. It was when then Cassius Clay became a worldwide uh, sensation. It was a lot of basic evolution that was taking place at the time. And at the time, she was on track to be at the forefront of that. But she was also going to be on the forefront on, you know, on a different level because she refused to stand when the national anthem was played uh, during the Pan Am Games the uh, the year before. And again, from that moment on, she really became an outcast in terms of what the U.S. Olympic Committee and the U.S. government was doing because, you know, that's what she was. She was again making a statement against, you know, American policy in a bunch of different places, including very obviously for her. Uh, race relations, and she's kind of been disappeared from uh, sports history, from track and field history, from Olympic history because she never got a chance to perform in the Olympics, uh, where she probably would have blown up along with all the other 
young black women athletes that, that became stars there. Uh, and she really kind of basically got buried because of her, of her, because of, of her stance, because she was outspoken and because she had used uh, the anthem uh, as a platform for her protest against what society was doing to, uh, to us. Wow. And that, and, and, and that was just fascinating to me to see that that was happening because I, you know, I did go back and kind of look, well, why do we, why do we stand for the anthem? Is there ever been reason why there's been protest? And there actually has been Supreme court cases over protesting the, they were, I mean, they were political in nature or, I mean, I should say, spiritual in nature and you know there was the west the famous west virginia case so before i get to that do do most people know you think know why they're standing for the national anthem or they just because it's common that's what it is it's 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 routine uh it's common it's what they've seen all their lives it's every it's, it's everything that they know you know there's a pretty good chance you know and i would really love to see polls about this and uh, one thing I remember really vividly, and you know, I, I will say this, and you, you probably experienced this as well as, as an author. You know, you write a book, or you know, really anything, any long written piece that you've done a lot of research on. You look back, go like, ah, oh, I wish I'd thought about it. I wish I'd remembered that. I wish I'd added that. I right. really better threw that in there. Yeah, that would have been a great thing to research. It's like, you know, what do pe- do, do people only understand? the national anthem through the, the lens of sports because that's their only interaction with it when it gets right down to it. <laughs> I mean, right. Cause even know, in school, we say, I pledge allegiance. We don't, right. The pledge of allegiance is what you say at school. You, and you don't really hear it. Even when you see a lot of ceremonies, you see the inauguration every four years, uh, you see things like, you know, there's going to be the, mem- the Memorial day um, uh, commemorations. Uh, it's going to be 4th of July. The national anthem really doesn't get played all that often, but it is played on a constant, regular basis. Now, not only at games, but at every sporting event, they played the national anthem at the NFL draft last month. I mean, <laughs> it, it's not even—it's <laughs> not even a competition. Um, it gets played all the time in relation to sports, as people believe that it's in, integral to sports. What all it really is, it goes back to, you know, World War One. It was played like during the World Series because the troops were coming home and, you know, they felt that they had to sort of create a, a patriotic fervor about having, you know, uh, conquered, uh, conquered the world. And so they associated with baseball and baseball had that huge visibility. So that's how it became a habit. And then habit comes into turns into tradition. And you realize that, it, you know, outside of things like the Olympics and things like that, national anthems are not part of sporting events anywhere else in the world, except here. You know, mm. you, know you see them at, wow, you see them at right. the Olympics, you see them at, say, the World Cup and, 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 and things like that. But in terms of every game, every league, every sport, I mean, literally, if you go to a Little League uh, baseball game, they're playing the national anthem before that. I mean, that, that's what I grew up on. You know, mm. I played CYO baseball. And they play the little recording of the national anthem right, before right. we took the field. You know, uh, you know, peewee football, cheerleading competitions, you know, track and field meets. Is you know, there's a little loudspeaker. They're playing the national anthem, and you're like, and and that's the association is is with sports, and that's how people took it when uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos protested. That's how they took it 
when when Colin Kaepernick uh, and and then the other players after that began taking a knee and ra- raising a fist, they felt that it was a you know you know they they intertwined sports and patriotism in America, you know so indelibly, and now this is obviously you know sort of a strategy and a tactic by right. most leagues, especially but most, by the NFL. yeah, but most most people just ref they reference the military. The military, yeah. The protection I mean, of the country, of the flag represents that. Well, that wasn't always, I mean, even that wasn't a part thing. There was not the, the Marine Color Guard. You know, there were not, there, there was not the Air Force flyovers. You know, there was, you know they, they played the national anthem, but then they added the military aspect of it to the point where there's an instant and unbreakable association between the national anthem and the military. When technically the national anthem is supposed to represent everybody, not just the military. Right. It's not just right. a salute to the military, it's a salute to all of the country, not just the people defending, but the people who are being defended, you know, by this right. country. And of course, right. the national anthem is like, it's based on a, a, a battle in the War of 1812. Yeah. I mean, living in Maryland, you know, they, they take it personally. <laughs> there was a, and this was sort of mentioned in the book as well. You know, a lot of fans in Baltimore did not want Colin Kaepernick to come to the Ravens, even though they were totally they they had horrible rash of injuries. Uh, uh, one training camp, not that long after uh, Kaepernick uh, uh, was let go, um, and there was a groundswell to you know get him on the team, and there were people who didn't want him there on the grounds of. You cannot have a man who protested the national anthem that was born here in Baltimore, you know, at uh, Fort McHenry with Francis Scott Key seeing the uh, the battle from his front porch or whatever, right. and have a guy here who uh, who insults the anthem and insults the flag and insults the, the the troops and and so that was that groundswell that was going on, which was part of the whole thing, which right. touched was, on the I guess strong yeah. strong enough. Wow, yeah, that's, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, well, let's move to and I, the the chapter with the non sports activists, um, and primarily I'm not going to focus on OJ just because um, we're going to really Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan. Um, these were two of the definitely two of the biggest athletes uh, in their day, um, and so they are known for not being activists and kind of outspoken where they, it really kind of, well, I guess, I don't know if it really put a ding on their careers, but there was clearly um, a side eye, I guess, for lack of a better word. So, but they also were in a time where they didn't have social media, where they could immediately react to something that they witnessed. So really my, one of the things I, I thought about when reading about them that they probably had PR people handling their, you know, their message and what got out because they probably were two of the probably most focused athletes out there, you know, and we, and it's obvious in their play. So was it the fact that their social, their PR people um, kind of influenced the messages that went out between them? And if it does, if that's the case, why why do they get dinged for it? It's an excellent question. Um, because I think it's something that a lot of people don't really think about when they think about 
both of those guys in that context. I think what what stuck what 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 stuck with people, you know, at that time when they were as big as could be, you know, not just in the sports world, but far, far, far beyond it. They were recognizable names and had incredible followings everywhere. If you knew nothing about basketball, knew nothing about golf, you knew who Michael Jordan and you knew who Tiger Woods were, and you would stop what you were doing to see what they were, to see right. what was going on with them. And the commercials were just, you know, they were ubiquitous. You could not, you could, you couldn't look for two seconds. If you never walk, if you never saw a basketball game or a golf tournament, you were still going to see Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods uh, all the time. And that was absolutely a part of, I think, the decisions uh, that they made because. You know, it's really kind of funny because in a, in a way they were so groundbreaking in those aspects because there had never been black athletes who were at that level of of worldwide endorsement, um, marketability, uh, recognition, and ability to, to to sell products to get people to follow them and to and to buy and to consume based on their word and their image alone. I mean, that was that was such an enormous uh, obstacle for, for people to scale. And you think of all the legends that preceded them, the Dr. J's and the Willie Mays's mm-hmm. and right. Hank Aaron's and just, you know, you know, it's funny you mentioned Jim Brown, you know, Walter Payton, just all those, all those athletes, track and field athletes, it's crazy. You know, it was the, the, the dichotomy between what they were doing successfully on the field and the way they were cashing in on it off the field, the way white athletes were from the beginning of time, going all back to like Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey and all that. Tiger and, and Michael broke through all of that. And so they were revolutionary in that aspect. The, the flip side of that is they could not jeopardize that by taking the kind of stand that would drive all those people off. I think that they were certainly getting... Uh, advice, counsel from, you know, the people that were counting on for marketing, their public relations people, all their representatives, you know, the people who were, you know, in the, in the agent business, the people who represented those two guys, those guys, they're, they're, they're like legendary people. If there was like an agent hall of fame, then Michael Jordan's agent and Tiger Woods agent would probably be there. And within their, their business and within their sports, they're huge names. You know, anybody who'd ask about that, you would not, you recognize them. And they were all on board with this. I mean, he, you know, they knew what, you know, you know, what was ahead for both of them that they could step on. I mean, there's a whole movie about that. Yeah. Air. <laughs> that's yeah. really, that's really what that's about. I just yeah. started watching it, so I can't wait to finish it. <laughs> yeah. I'd like it. That is on my schedule for very soon. Cause I want, yeah. And the thing is, it, we've seen all those people before. We see like the Sonny Vaccaros and the David Fox and all those people, you know, and there's probably gonna be a movie about Tiger, you know, and what he has done. For, for Nike as well. I mean, just the, the, the Nike itself, you know, owes so much to both of them, but it's also, you know, vice versa with them because they have taken those two guys all the way, all the way to the new heights. But you can't get all that, get that far with that, you know, if you risk all of that and, you know, say, try to, you know, try to sell shoes or Gatorade or Coke or, or, or clubs or whatever, while talking about, you know, uh, revolution and stopping the police and, you know, don't let them get away with this and that and, and civil rights and equality, you know, they know what the audience is that, that, you know, as much as we wish that black people could generate that kind of wealth for each other numbers wise, we, you know, 
not in position to do that. We can't sustain. Yeah. That. So I mean, I guess, and so, but Le, and we'll just use LeBron because I would have to okay. say he's probably the only one. Uh, Steph Curry maybe a little bit wrong below him, but he's able to use the platform and and is also on that kind of that level. Why is it different for LeBron versus Michael? Is it the because? Yeah, I'll let you answer it. Well, I, think, I, 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 I don't track you because I think you're right. I, I think it's sort of the evolution of time. I think that a lot of people saw, you know, what Michael and Tiger, uh, you know, what choices they made um, to say no to um, putting themselves out there like that when they had the greatest platform than any other black athlete has ever had, you know, even bigger, far, far bigger than anything that even Ali or Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Jim Brown and Bill Russell and those sort of guys uh, uh, had, you know, they had scaled the mountaintop. Everybody saw them as, Hey, this is your opportunity to really change things. If you say that we got to stop X, Y, and Z, they're going to listen to you. Like they have never listened to anybody else. And the fact that they said no, in a lot of minds, it's tainted their legacies. You know, they look at, my, I mean, you can't deny what Michael or Tiger had, has done or accomplished or, you know, the, the position they hold. That's always going to be held against them by certain people. Somebody is always going to be there to point that out and say, you know, you chose the just immeasurable wealth and fame uh, and, and influence. And you said, well, I'm going to take this influence, but I'm only going to take it to to enrich myself. I think right. that once several generations grow up on that, like LeBron's generation and Steph Curry's generation, you know, the generation that, you know, later on did begin to speak out. They they wore the I can't breathe t-shirts, you know, they did the hands up don't don't shoot protests. You know, they participated fully in everything that was going on around uh, George Floyd. You know, they spoke back against Donald Trump. Um, you know, they spoke back against the people who supported those people. Right. Um, because they said, yes, I had the fame. Yes, I had the thing. But, you know, I, I do have this position. What's the worst that can happen if I, if I use, the, use the platform? You know, that I do. We've seen and I just wonder, I wonder about that because, I mean, Michael, people are still buying Michael Jordan shoes. Um, his yeah. documentary was still, <laughs> still off the charts. I mean, yeah. And I think, you know, I don't even know if Tiger will will lose any of that only because of there won't there hasn't been anyone that come behind him that uh, that is uh, um, of color as of now. Um, I mean, and I think there's been other things that have affected him, you know, just, you know, the car crash and all of that. But I mean, I think they're still endured and maybe maybe it's in the in the sports community. He, maybe they get dinged. Um, but it is it is fascinating to really um, to really consider. Um, but then, from a so let's kind of take it to a league you know perspective because you really talked about um, you interwove the in interwove with the WNBA and how I guess connected they were as a league uh, when they spoke out about injustices that were going on. Uh, so. Would you say, would you say they were more galvanized in the things that were going on at that time, and and then if that is the case, would you consider them? How would you rank the leagues as far as 
is the most, I guess, for lack of the better, the most woke. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to reclaim that word. I'm glad you yeah, said yeah. that. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Honestly, it's it, it's fascinating because I think the WNBA is 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 really they're in first place by a by a pretty huge margin. Um, I think that their activities uh, during uh, a lot of these protests, and that goes back to the year that uh, Colin Kaepernick got started. And really, you know, on a, it has continued, you know, regularly ever since then. You know, they have always been outspoken. Um, I and, and they've always been galvanized, you know, and they've always, you know, been comfortable and secure enough to have it reach across racial lines. I mean, you know, entire teams uh, would 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 stand behind, you know, the black players who uh, encouraged. Uh, some of these protests that have gone on over the years, you know, and they have always stuck together. You know, there have not been holdouts in this place and that place. You know, they haven't had teammates butting heads against each other, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, they were always united when, no matter what the, uh, what the cause was. Uh, and they were often united against their, uh, their bosses, against the teens, against the, the league itself, which often had to be sort of dragged into the, uh, <laughs> into the fight uh, along with them. So you always have to make a very uh, important distinction between WNBA players and the league itself, because the players were always at the forefront and they always took the controls and took the lead and made sure everybody sort of followed them. Uh, and honestly, I could probably devote or anybody, anybody else could devote a whole book about, about why that dynamic is working with them. I don't know mm. if it's because, you know, women have had so much more of an uphill fight Mm-hmm. on the bigger stage of sports, right. uh, why they've had to hold it together uh, much more because they had so much more to lose because they had so, you know, they had so little to to, to begin with. Um, I think you see the same in a lot of uh, a women's professional sports, certainly tennis. Uh, you see that sort of dynamic as well. But the WNBA has, has really never flinched in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the spotlight of, uh, of, of these sort of fights. Uh, the NBA, I think, obviously, a lot of it, obviously, is the racial dynamic that's mm-hmm. there. But again, it's also a function of its biggest names. And if the biggest names are on board, then you're going to get a lot more people following it. And again, that sort of goes back to the lesson of uh, of Michael Jordan. You sort of ask yourself, what if Michael Jordan had been that sort of uh, uh, spokesperson, that, that, that person in the forefront? the way LeBron has been, the way that Steph Curry has been, the way Kobe was for a while before we lost him. Um, you know, how different might things have been? Uh, because mm-hmm. we're seeing it so much with, you know, uh, with LeBron and with Steph and with, and with those guys. We go being the ones out front and the ones saying, hey, if he can do it, then I can go ahead and do it well. Because, you know, we he's the guy we watch. He's the guy we, you know, take our cues from. And in some cases, certainly, at this stage of those guys' career, these are the guys that I grew up uh, idolizing, and now I feel more comfortable speaking out and being this vocal because I see what they've done, and I've seen that it's not only effective, but they also, you know, are able to maintain, you know, the position that they're in. This concludes part one of our episode. Stay tuned next week as we dive deeper into David Steele's book. It was always a choice picking up the baton of athlete activism. Once again, you can always find the Black Men Speak podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts like Apple and Spotify. We'll see you next week.